We're doing a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John, and as we continue in our study through this book, we come this morning to John chapter 6, verse 16, and my goal today is to cover verses 16 through 21, and the title of the message is Jesus in the Storm. Jesus uh, in the Storm. When I was younger, our family uh, lived on the East Coast, and For some of those years, we lived fairly close to the Atlantic Ocean, and uh, during uh, those days of growing up, my dad uh, took us boys fishing uh, often, and I remember one of those occasions when he took us offshore fishing uh, from a boat, uh, which was my first time experiencing such a trip, and as we pulled away from the dock for the deeper waters of the ocean, my dad turned to me and he said, son, whatever you do, don't get seasick. I'd never even heard of seasickness uh, before, but as soon as my dad mentioned it, I became obsessed and started worrying that I was going to get seasick, and sure enough, I did, making for a miserable day out on the ocean. A number of years ago, a group from Cornerstone uh, took an offshore fishing trip, and I went with them with my two oldest children, and sure enough, I got seasick again, enough so that I had to lean my head overboard a few times to enrich the ocean with nutrients from my stomach. And I remember the nausea and the loathing that I felt with each toss of the boat from the waves underneath us. And during that spell of seasickness, I remember looking at the land because it was within my view and longing for it like some of us would long for heaven. If someone uh, in a speedboat had come by in that moment and offered to take me to land for a price, I probably would have given everything I owned just to get to the land. It seemed so stable and solid compared to the water that I was on. Thankfully, on that occasion, uh, I was eventually able to get past my seasickness and catch some fish and enjoy the trip together with the others. But I share all this to say that I cannot imagine uh, being in the situation that the disciples find themselves in in our passage today, experiencing stormy waters and high winds on a boat for hours at night in the dark with no visibility. Their boat being battered by the waves and with them straining at the oars and getting nowhere except further off course. Unlike me, these men were seasoned travelers on the sea, so they had no worries about seasickness, but we will find them absolutely terrified and then calmed by something that they do encounter during this storm. Ultimately, we're going to see these disciples of Jesus beginning a journey across the Sea of Galilee without Jesus, but by the time they reach the end of their journey, they will have Jesus with them 
in the boat. And you'll recall from last Sunday that Jesus had traveled to the northeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee with his disciples for some alone time and to rest, yet we saw how the crowds followed them to this location. Thankfully, Jesus looked at the multitude and he felt compassion for them, and he began to teach them many things. And we also saw how Jesus ended up tending to their physical needs as well by multiplying five barley biscuits and two small fish into a meal that fed 5,000 men plus women and children to the point of complete satisfaction. We saw how the people responded to this miracle by concluding that Jesus was the prophet that the Old Testament prophesied would come into the world. And we also saw in verse 15 how the people began putting two and two together and they started wanting to take Jesus by force and to make him king who would overthrow Herod who ruled over Galilee and also who would throw off the tyranny of Rome. Yet, in verse 15, this is where we ended last week, it is evident that Jesus sees revolution in the eyes of this, the people of this crowd, and he immediately begins to withdraw from them so as not to allow them to take him by force and to make him king. Some of the gospel accounts tell us that Jesus began attempting to send the people away, seeking to disperse the crowd. And we will see in the events that unfold from here that Jesus even seeks to send his disciples away from the scene, probably, as commentators suggest, to remove them from the foolish multitude and its plans to make him king, and probably also because these disciples were getting caught up in the excitement of the crowd about the prospects of Jesus becoming king right away. I would imagine that the disciples, as they see Jesus withdrawing and even trying to send them away, that the disciples are probably left feeling a little disillusioned that Jesus wasn't willing to let himself be king and to let the people make him king. After all, wasn't that what they were working toward? But Jesus knows what he is doing. He must go to a cross first, and his disciples also have some important lessons that they need to learn to prepare them for work in his kingdom and we're going to see Jesus being faithful to teach them some of these lessons in our passage today. And the way we're going to break down our study this morning, if you can even see your notes in front of you, is we're going to observe five developments, five developments in the story of how Jesus' disciples experience Jesus in the midst of a storm. And the first of these developments is, number one, Jesus has them start off across the sea without him. 
Jesus has them start off across the sea without him. Observe what the text says in verses 16 and the first part of verse 17. Now, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. And after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum, which was on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, reading only John's gospel, one might wonder if the disciples are taking off on this journey on their own volition, but Mark's gospel makes it clear that they are not just doing this on their own. In Mark chapter 6, verse 45, Mark says, and I quote, Jesus made his disciples. Literally, he compelled his disciples to get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he himself was sending the crowd away. So they're getting in this boat and taking off because Jesus is making them do this. The language that Mark uses indicates that the disciples evidently did not want to leave at this time, but Jesus compels them to leave, maybe even pushing their boat from the shore to send them off on their journey. Then we're told in Mark chapter 6, verse 46, after bidding them farewell, Jesus left for the mountain to pray withdrawing now from whatever remnants of the crowd remained and leaving the disciples now to travel across the sea without him. There's a storm that awaits these disciples, and Jesus knows it, but he sends them off on their own at this moment without him. From one standpoint, the trip that these disciples need to make is a simple one. They're just going to travel from the northeast side of the sea to the northwest side of the sea. At most, this is going to be a four or five mile journey across the Sea of Galilee. That's not very far. The disciples are experienced with the Sea of Galilee and they probably take off on their journey without any worries at all about reaching their destination in good time. Yet notice how verse 17 of John 6 ends with these words. It had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. You get the impression that the disciples, after they were pushed off, into the water that they lingered for a while near the shore, hoping that Jesus would reappear on the shoreline to join them in their journey across the sea, but it seems that Jesus never came. So these disciples take off in the boat and they begin their journey, hoping to reach their destination in good time, but it is then that something happens, and this brings us to the second development in this story of Jesus' disciples experiencing Jesus in the midst of a storm. Number two, they encounter a storm in their journey. They encounter a storm in their journey. 
Observe what happens in verse 18, which serves to explain why their simple journey became impossibly complicated. The text says, the sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. Keep in mind that we are right now at this moment in John 6 in the spring of the year with the Passover approaching. We learned that last Sunday from earlier in chapter 6. And just to give you perspective, in the spring of this year, in May of 2022, just a few months ago, there were gale force winds on the Sea of Galilee that featured wind gusts of 90 miles an hour and generating waves that were over 10 feet high and causing around $50 million worth of damage. That's just this year on the Sea of Galilee. And evidently, something like this is happening in our passage today. In Matthew 14, 24, you can write that reference down, Matthew 14, 24, we learn that the problem was not just the winds, but that the boat itself was being, and I'm quoting from Matthew now, battered, literally tormented by the waves, unquote. In the process, the disciples are being blown off course, leaving them a long distance distance from the land, according to Matthew 14, 24. And in Mark chapter 6 and verse 47, Mark tells us that the disciples are blown off course to such an extent that they eventually find themselves in the middle of the sea. So they started off trying to make a modest journey from the northeastern side of the Sea of Galilee to the northwestern side, but now they find themselves blown out into the middle of the sea and getting nowhere. John does not tell us this in John chapter 6, but in Mark chapter 6, verse 48, Mark tells us that from Jesus' position up in the mountain, Jesus was seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them. Given the fact that it is dark now, this is Jesus exercising his supernatural eyesight to see these men and their predicament. He sees them being pushed to the limit of their abilities and fighting for every inch of progress, and only getting further off course. And for the moment, it seems that Jesus, seeing all of that, stays where he is and lets them struggle. Now, what's fascinating for us to consider is the fact that the disciples are only in this storm right now because Jesus had compelled them to take this journey, right? The prophet Jonah 
in the Old Testament encountered a raging storm at sea because he was disobeying God and running away from God. Yet these men are encountering this storm precisely because they are doing exactly what Jesus had compelled them to do. And that is to take this journey. In the process, I think Jesus is teaching them something here, showing them that as they follow him and do exactly as he commands, they're going to face contrary winds and stormy waters. This is the way it has been with all who have followed God's call upon their life down through the centuries, and it's what's going to happen to Jesus multiple times throughout his ministry, all the way to the ultimate storm of the cross. And we ought to learn this lesson as well. As the commentator R. Kent Hughes says, and I quote, Moses would have never felt rejected by a complaining people if at the burning bush he had decided not to obey Jehovah. Daniel would never have had to face the lion's den if he had not decided to be faithful to God. Just think of how much persecution the apostle Paul would have avoided if he had just stayed in Tarsus. R. Kent Hughes then goes on to say, yes, following Christ will take us into some fierce storms, but the rewards are even greater than the storms. Speaking of those greater rewards, the disciples are about to experience some of that, though at first they're not going to realize it. And this brings us to the third development in this amazing story of these disciples experiencing Jesus in the midst of a storm. Number three, Jesus draws near to them in the storm. Jesus draws near to them in the storm. Observe what happens in verse 19. Then when they had rowed about three or four miles, the Greek text says 25 or 30 stadia, which is actually anywhere from 2.9 to 3.5 miles. So three or four miles is a good round figure that the translators of the New American Standard use. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat. Now, if you'll recall what I said at the outset, three or four miles should have had them close to their destination by now. But again, Mark 6.47 tells us that the boat is now in the middle of the sea. Mark also tells us in Mark 6.48 that they are right now at about the fourth watch of the night, which means they're somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., which means that these disciples have been on the water anywhere from six to 10 hours by now. Jesus has been watching them, we have seen, and he has obviously allowed them to struggle for hours without him. Yet when the time was right, Jesus 
moves toward them in their struggle and comes walking on the water and drawing near to them in this storm. This is actually a wonderful thing that Jesus is now coming to his disciples on the water, but how do they respond at the sight of Jesus? Verse 19 of John 6 ends with these words, and they, the disciples, were frightened. So we got a little bit of light to work with, that's wonderful. John doesn't tell us why they were frightened, but Mark does tell us. In Mark 6, verses 49 through 50, Mark tells us that when they saw the form of Jesus walking on the water toward them, quote, they supposed that it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. Yeah, I was thinking it'd be better if the lights were out for this part. We can bring them up later when everything gets resolved. So in, in the minds of the disciples, who else could walk on water but a weightless ghost or a spirit being? You'll be interested to know that the word, the Greek word translated ghost in Mark chapter 6, verse 49, is the Greek word phantasma which is where we get our English word phantom from. This is what the disciples think they are looking at. And this is why Mark tells us in Mark chapter 6, verse 50, that when they saw Jesus, they were terrified. And John uses similar terminology here in verse 19, telling us that these disciples were frightened. As far as these disciples know, they are in the middle of a horror movie right now. Given the superstitions of the day, keep in mind that these disciples are almost certainly not thinking that this is some random ghost that they have happened upon who happens to be walking on the waters of the Sea of Galilee. They are likely thinking that this is the evil spirit who caused the storm in order to blow them off course and direct their boat to him. In other words, this phantom is, in their minds, the storm master who caused this storm in order to bring them to him so that he can now bring upon them some evil, awful fate. That's why they're scared. What's crazy to think about is that these disciples are just a few hours away from having seen Jesus miraculously feeding 5,000 men plus women and children, yet here they are right now out of their minds with fear and superstition. It's amazing sometimes how quickly even as believers, we can travel from spiritual highs to superstitious lows, right? Matthew 14, 26 tells us that when they cried out, these disciples said, it is a ghost. It is a phantasmos. It is a phantom. 
Little do they realize that they are staring right at their Savior, Jesus Christ. The arrival of Jesus is the best thing that could have happened to them in this moment. They're staring at their Savior who has come to them on the water in the middle of this storm to help them, but they don't realize this yet. They think he's a phantom who's come to destroy them and send them to their death beneath the waves. Isn't this the way we can be sometimes? Jesus comes to us in our need, and his arrival is really the best thing that could have ever happened to us, and yet we're afraid of him and would wish to flee away from him, thinking that he's coming to do us harm when in reality, his intentions are for our good. In this case, here in John 6, Jesus comes to his disciples and they see him and they, they freak out. So Jesus realizes that he needs to do more than just appear to them and draw near to them. He needs to speak to them and tell them who he is. And this brings us to the fourth development in this story of Jesus' disciples experiencing Jesus in the midst of a storm. Number four, Jesus reveals himself to them in the storm. Jesus reveals himself to them in the storm. Observe what Jesus does in verse 20. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. It is I. Do not be afraid. Our English translations translate Jesus' words as it is I. The Greek is ego eimi, which literally translates as I am. In John 8, 58, Jesus will say before Abraham was ego eimi. Before Abraham was, I am. Later in this chapter, Jesus will say, I am the bread of life. And later he will say things like, I am the resurrection and the life. And I am the way, the truth, and the life. Here, to his disciples in the middle of this storm, Jesus simply says, I am which is the very name of Jehovah God that God speaks to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 in verse 14. And this kind of language from Jesus should not surprise us because we know who he is. He is God. In Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, we find that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the what? The waters. In the Greek Translation of Job chapter 9 and verse 8, Job speaks of God and describes God as he, and I'm quoting, who alone walks on the sea as on firm ground, unquote. So here is Jesus in this moment, God in the flesh, standing and walking where only God can stand and walk and declaring what only God can claim, saying to his disciples, Ego eimi, 
I am. Having said that, it is I is not a bad translation. Jesus is indeed speaking these words to assure his disciples that he is no evil phantom, but he is the Jesus that they know. Notice that Jesus doesn't even identify himself by name, which means that he fully intends for simply the sound of his voice to reassure them that he is the Jesus that they know. He is saying, it is I, the one whose voice you recognize to be that of Jesus. Jesus is drawing forth from them the memory of their prior experiences with him. It's me, Jesus says, the one who has called each of you to myself and had many conversations with each of you. It's me who healed the lame man by the pool of Bethesda and told him to get up and walk. It's me who just yesterday gave thanks in prayer to the Father and fed the 5,000 just a few hours ago. So stop being afraid, Jesus says to his disciples. Don't try to paddle your boat away from me. You have no reason to be afraid of me. In Matthew chapter 14, verse 27, Matthew has Jesus also saying to them in this moment, take courage, be brave. John does not tell us this, but Matthew in his gospel then proceeds to tell us how Peter did take courage, amazing courage. In Matthew 14, verse 28 Matthew tells us that, and I quote, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. In Peter's mind, if this is indeed Jesus, then Peter's thought is, I'd rather be with Jesus outside of this boat than be without Jesus and inside this boat. I also love the fact that Peter doesn't respond to Jesus in Matthew's gospel by saying, Lord, if it's you, command these waves to die down and make this wind to stop so that we can get to our destination. No, he's not even thinking about the storm right now. And he is no longer even thinking about their original destination. The only thing Peter is thinking about right now is his desire to be right next to Jesus. So he says to Jesus, if it is you, Jesus, command me to come to you on the water. You are the only destination I care about right now. So in Matthew 14, 29 and 30, you guys know the story. We read these words. And Jesus said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind... Peter became frightened and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus is a merciful Lord and he reaches out to rescue Peter. In Matthew 14, 31, it says, immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? This is a rebuke from Jesus, to be sure, but it embodies a wonderfully positive affirmation. 
According to Jesus' words, Peter actually does have faith. Peter's faith is little, but Jesus affirms the fact that he actually has faith. Jesus is that kind of Savior to all of us. Even in our moments of doubt, Jesus still sees that slender thread of faith, even when it is little in the moment, though he will speak truth to us and ask us why we doubted him. Anyway, John does not get into any of these details in his account, writing as late as he's writing in the first century. He's aware that his readers, most of them already know those details recorded in the other Gospels. All John records is that Jesus speaks to his frightened disciples and says, it is I, be not afraid, which is fascinating to me. It should be instructive to us that this is all that Jesus feels that he needs to say in order to get his disciples to not be afraid any longer. Jesus doesn't say, it is I, and I promise that I will calm the wind and the waves, and I will keep you alive, and I will make sure that you get to your destination, so don't be afraid. No, all he says is, it's me. Stop being afraid. And that's actually all we need to hear too. Amen? All we really need to know in our trials is that the all-powerful and all-loving Jesus is near. And that is enough to calm our fears. I don't know about you, but I think I can go through just about any trial so long as I know that Jesus is right there in the middle of that trial with me. On the other hand, if I don't have that assurance, I'm a total sissy. I can't make it through the smallest of trials. I can't even make it through good times if I don't have the assurance that he is with me. And by the way, keep in mind that Jesus is not walking on water here simply because he wants to perform some amazing stunt and show off his ability to walk on water. He's walking on water right now because his disciples are in the middle of the water. And Jesus wants to get to them where they are on the water. He's determined to get to them in the middle of their distress. And evidently, the laws of physics are no obstacle for Jesus when he wants to get to his people in the middle of their troubles. If this story shows us anything, it shows us that there is no trouble that you and I as believers will ever find ourselves in that Jesus doesn't want to be with us in, and that there is no location of trouble where Jesus can't get to us. Jesus is not the kind of good-hearted but helpless Savior who stands on the shore during our storms and says, man, I'd love to help you out and be with you, but there's water between you and me, so I just can't get to you right now. Not at all. Jesus will walk on water if he has to in order to get to you and your troubles, and there are no laws of physics and no storm fierce enough to keep him away from you. When you are experiencing any storm, 
Nothing can ever, ever separate you from his love. Back in the book of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are cast into the middle of the furnace of blazing fire that had been set on its hottest setting. So they're cast into that fire, but when King Nebuchadnezzar looks in, what does he see? He sees those three, but he also sees a fourth person in Daniel 3.25 who is there with them who looks like the Son of God, he says. That's Jesus with them in the fire. Evidently, even fire cannot keep Jesus from being with his people. Whether his people are being assaulted by water or by fire, Jesus wants to be with his people. And there is nothing that can hinder him from being with his people in the fire or in the storm. Looking back at our text here in John 6, the disciples now realize that Okay, this is Jesus, and this brings us to the final development in this story of Jesus' disciples experiencing Jesus in the midst of the storm. Number five, they received Jesus into their boat. They received Jesus into their boat and finished their journey with him. They received Jesus into their boat and finished their journey with him. Observe what happens in verse 21. So they were willing to receive him into the boat. Just a few moments earlier, they would not have entertained such an idea. Now they know that it's him, they were willing to receive him into the boat. They aren't just letting him onto their boat, they're warmly welcoming him into their boat. And in Mark chapter 6, verse 51, Write that reference down. In Mark 6, 51, Mark tells us that as soon as Jesus got into the boat, the wind stopped. Not only that, at the end of John 6, 21, our passage for today, John says, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This immediate arrival at the land seems to be yet another miracle that Jesus is performing in this moment. All of these hours, these disciples had strained at the oars trying to get to their destination, but they had failed. They had relied upon their decades of experience on the Sea of Galilee, but all of that was in vain. They're just getting more and more off course now with Jesus in the boat, they find themselves immediately at their desired destination. The Savior who had just defied the laws of physics and gravity now defies space and time and takes them immediately to their destination. And ponder this with me for just a moment. When they realized that it was Jesus walking on the water toward them, the disciples could have said, we don't have time to welcome Jesus into our boat right now. We've got rowing to do in order to get to our destination. 
But they don't do that. They willingly receive Jesus into their boat, and immediately their boat is at its destination. Those of you who right now think you're too busy for Jesus, take note of what happens here. I know of people who are too busy for Jesus right now. They hope to get to him by and by and let him be involved in their life eventually. But for now, they got places to go and things they got to do. Then there are those who welcome Jesus into their life right now and allow Jesus to take them where he wants them to go, just like Jesus does for these disciples. And I hope you're in that latter category. Well, they're at the land. How do these disciples respond to this instant change in the weather and their sudden arrival at their destination? How do they respond to Jesus walking on stormy waters to get to them? Well, John doesn't tell us, but in Mark chapter 6, verse 51, Mark tells us that, and I quote, they, the disciples, were utterly astonished, unquote. These men are out of their minds with astonishment, which might to us seem like a good thing, but it's not. Because in Mark chapter 6, verse 52, the very next verse, Mark tells us the reason they were left so astonished. Mark says, and I quote, for they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened, unquote. In other words, what Jesus does here in walking on the water and calming the storm and bringing these disciples to their destination should not have been so astonishing to them. If Jesus can defy the laws of physics and produce food to feed 5,000 plus people out of just a, a few biscuits and a couple fish with food left over to gather up, then what Jesus is doing here in walking on the water and ultimately causing the wind to cease should not have been so astonishing to these disciples. And yet, Mark says they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves just the day before, and their heart was hardened. It's a stunning thing to me to observe that these very disciples that Jesus had chosen, all of whom witnessed the amazing miracle of the day before, along with other amazing miracles, and even miracles being done through them. They saw the miracle of the day before, of the multiplication of the loaves and the fish. Jesus even used them in the distribution of this miracle to the multitude. It's amazing to me that they would be so slow to gain insight that they should have gained and that their hearts would actually be hardened by this miracle. It's amazing that men who are so close to Jesus and so loved by him 
so privileged by him could have this happen to them. But you know what, guys? This serves to remind you and me that even as believers, we too often can be very slow to learn, right? And we too can allow our hearts to become hardened. And yet, amazingly, Jesus still loves us and pursues us in our sluggishness and in our sin. He puts us into the middle of storms to plow up our hardened hearts and bring us to the end of ourselves. And he comes to us in those storms and he speaks to us and he actually gets into the boat with us. He doesn't cast us off when he sees that we're not gaining the insight we ought to gain and when he sees that our heart is becoming hardened, but he persists with us as he does with these disciples to soften our hearts and to teach us what it is that we need to learn. That's the kind of savior that he is. And Jesus, no doubt, perceived the lack of learning that was happening from the miracle of the previous day and the hard-heartedness that was setting in and orchestrates these circumstances in order to bring them into a deeper experience of him. Even as Christians, you and I, we're all a mixed bag of good and evil, of belief and unbelief at all times virtually. And so are Jesus' disciples even here. Yes, they're slow to learn. Yes, they have allowed their hearts to become hardened. And yes, they are here allowing themselves to become sinfully astonished at Jesus. But somewhere, somehow, among all of that mess, the disciples do arrive at a wonderfully correct conclusion about Jesus. In Matthew 14, verse 33, Matthew says, and those who were in the boat, that's the disciples, worshipped him, saying, you are certainly God's son, unquote. If you had interviewed them, they would have said, yeah, we knew this before, but now we really know this in a deeper way than we have ever known it before. It's almost like these disciples are getting saved all over again. All in all, when we put the gospel accounts of this incident together, we see Peter saying to Jesus when he was sinking, save me. We see the disciples willing to receive Jesus into their boat. We see them now worshiping Jesus and saying, you are certainly God's son. And it was a storm that Jesus used to bring them to this point of receiving him and worshiping him as the very son of God that he is. This is the way Jesus often works in our lives. He often chooses to meet us in the shadows and it is often in the storms of life that we end up being able to see him best. This is why he allows storms into our lives on many occasions. Such storms are actually expressions of his love because of how he intends to use them to bring us to the end 
of ourselves and then reveal himself to us. That's what he does for these disciples here in John 6. And that's what he often does with us as well. These disciples were probably disillusioned with Christ when they saw him withdrawing from the crowd the day before, the crowd that wanted to make him king. But here they're being reminded that, nah, Jesus is definitely king. He's definitely king. He's king over the wind and over the waves and over the water. He's king over space and time. And we ought to just trust him and know that he is king and he will become king in the time of his choosing. In the end, we see that Jesus' disciples started off on their journey without Jesus in the boat, but they finished their journey with Jesus in the boat. And somewhere in the middle, Jesus uses the tribulation of a storm to bring about that change. We're going to stop here for today in terms of working through the text, but let me just ponder a few points with you as we wrap up this morning. First of all, we learn in our passage today that Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than Moses. Moses had done his own feat when it comes to the water and seeing God's people through the water. In Exodus 14, Moses and the children of Israel find themselves with the Red Sea in front of them and the pursuing Egyptians behind them. And in Exodus chapter 14, verses 21 and 22, we read these words. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land, so the waters were divided. And the sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on the dry land, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. What an epic moment that had to be for the children of Israel to see Moses' mastery over the waters at God's command. All in all, it was under Moses that manna from heaven was miraculously given to the children of Israel. And it was under Moses' leadership that God controlled the Red Sea and made it a safe passage for his people. Well, we saw last week how Jesus miraculously provided bread and fish, a full meal for 5,000 plus people. And we're now seeing today how Jesus wields absolute control over the elements of water. Only in this case, he didn't need to part the Sea of Galilee. He didn't need to split the sea. He can just walk on top of it to get where he needs to go to be with his disciples and to lead them safely through the water to their destination. If the events of John 6 show us anything, they show us that Jesus is greater than Moses. And that's really good news for all of us. As John says back in chapter 1, verse 17, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. 
the fact that Jesus is greater than Moses serves to validate the grace and the truth that comes to us through Jesus. And there is nothing that the law of Moses could ever do to trump that. So even what we've seen today, this is really good news for us when it comes to our salvation. There's another lesson for us in this passage today, and that is in this story, we see the inadequacy of human resources and the love and the overwhelming power of Jesus. These disciples were capable men familiar with the ways of the sea, yet they encountered a storm that they could not even begin to navigate. And no amount of rowing was getting them anywhere. They needed Jesus more than anything. And thankfully, Jesus came to them and nothing could keep him away from them. He even walked on stormy water to get to them. That's how much he wanted to be their savior and companion in this situation. And think about what Jesus has done to be with you and to rescue you. You were lost in your sins and only getting more lost, and you were completely helpless to save yourself. And what did Jesus do? He was willing to leave heaven's glories and come to earth and walk a lonely path to the cross in order to shed his blood so that you might have the forgiveness of all of your sins. He was willing to walk from heaven to earth and then walk from the manger to the cross in order to get to you. He was willing to endure the ultimate storm of God's wrath at the cross so that he might be your savior and your forever companion. What is not to love about a savior like this? If you're here this morning and you have never believed in Jesus, I urge you to fall before him today and to worship him and to say to him, you are certainly the son of God. You are certainly the savior for me. I trust that you will so see the beauty and the power of Jesus, even in our passage today, so much so that you would view it as an intolerable suffering to live one more hour apart from him. We all started our life's journey without Jesus, but you don't have to finish your journey without him. What matters is, are you willing to receive him into your boat? Are you willing to receive him as your Lord and Savior so that he might now be your captain and you might now finish your life's journey with him? Finally, a passage like this teaches us that we can be thankful for the storms that God allows into our lives, right? And that we can say things like the psalmist in Psalm 119, 71 says, when he says, it is good for me that I was afflicted so that I might learn. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was a brilliant writer who boldly spoke out against the evils of Soviet communism in the last century. And he was exiled and imprisoned for 
speaking out the way that he did. But it was while he was in prison that he began to see the gravity of his own sins and his need to be saved from his own sins. And God touched his heart while he was in that awful prison and God drew him to himself and Solzhenitsyn believed in the Lord Jesus Christ for his salvation while in prison for speaking out against the evils of Soviet communism. And sometime later, Solzhenitsyn was thankfully released from prison. But after he was released from prison, he found himself looking back on his time in that awful prison. And he said these words, listen to this, bless you prison. Bless you for being in my life. For there, lying upon the rotting prison straw, I came to realize that the object of life is not prosperity, but the maturity of the human soul. And I think the disciples would have been able to say something very similar as they look back on this storm that they encountered on the sea. They would not have wished this storm on their worst enemy, but because Jesus showed up in the middle of that storm and revealed himself to them and matured them and softened their hearts and gave them deeper insight, I am sure that they all look back on that storm and could say, bless you, storm for being in my life. You see, if you belong to Jesus, Jesus never, ever, merely leads you into a storm. He always comes to you in that storm and leads you through the storm and to a deeper experience of him. So I don't know what you're going through at this season of your life. I don't know what storm you might be experiencing. Perhaps the waves are beating against your boat and the winds are fiercely contrary to you. Perhaps you are straining at the oars and not only not getting where you wanna go, but you're getting only further and further off course. I want you to know this morning that Jesus sees you. And I want you to know that he wants to be with you in that storm if you will let him be. The only question is, will you willingly receive him into your boat and will you worship him as the son of God? Will you relish his presence with you Will you let him use this storm to bring you to the end of yourself and show you the poverty of your spirit? And will you let him be your captain? Will you trust him and let him teach you and grow you and soften your heart through this storm? If your answer to these questions is yes, then I'm confident that one day you will be able to look back on this storm 
and say, bless you, storm, for being in my life. Or let's say it more poetically. I'm confident that one day you will be able to say with Charles Spurgeon, who always had an amazing way of saying everything, quote, I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me up against the rock of ages. Let me say that again. I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me up against the rock of ages. Let's pray together. Lord, a passage like this just reveals so much about you, Lord Jesus, and the all-wise way in which you allow us to experience storms in this broken, fallen world in which we live but none of those storms are wasted. All of them are purposeful. You are always doing a million things and in everything you allow in our lives, every trial, every hardship, every disappointment, you force those things to pay us tribute and to do good to us. And in those hardships, you are with us and intend to teach us and grow us and mature our soul and reveal yourself to us in deeper ways. I pray, Lord, that you would just give us a certain grace wherein we can say with the psalmist, it's good for me that I was afflicted. But that's him talking after the fact. That's a little easier to do. That even in the middle of a storm, that we can have a gospel perspective wherein we can say, a lot of this does not make sense to me right now, but it is good for me that I am in the circumstances I'm in right now because I know that I have a loving Savior who is going to work this for my good and for His glory somehow, some way, and bring me into a deeper experience of Him. I think, Lord, You put us through various storms to wean us from the idols that we depend on, that we rely on, that we long for, and that we want so badly, then when we don't get it, we can just be so angry with a, a bruising, crushing disappointment. But ultimately, it's in such circumstances that you come to us and say, I am, ego me." It is I, and I'm here to be your everything.
And may we each, Lord, just have the grace to turn our eyes from all else, fix our eyes on you, and worship you as the Son of God, as our fullness provider, and as the Savior and the friend and the God that we most need. We ask all of these things, Lord, in the name of Jesus and all God's people said,